Today I'll be reading from Acts 5, verses 41 through 42, the ESV version. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. Wherever the church is, uh, there are problems uh, throughout the whole world. There's, there's never been a church that's been able to exist and grow and flourish without problems arising. That's true today. That's true here. And that's also true 2,000 years ago with the church in Jerusalem. Last week, we talked about Acts chapter 2, and we talked about uh, the, the beginning of the church there in Jerusalem, and how Acts chapter 2 ends with this almost like just perfect ideal picture of what the church is. And there are so many sermons that I've heard throughout my life about what the church ought to be. And you look at Acts chapter 2 and you look at how it ends. And let me just read some of these verses to you. Uh, Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to breaking of bread and to prayers. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles and all those who believed were together and they had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them among all as anyone might have need. Day by day, Continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord was adding to the church day by day those who were being saved. I mean, you read through that passage and you see... I mean, radical fellowship, incredible generosity. You see time spent, you see dedication to prayer and to the, the doctrine or teaching of the apostles and to, to giving and to, to, to uh, worship with one another and to gathering together. You see community that is so tight-knit and it's incredible. And you see like all of these things happening. And the result of that is you see this growing church day by day. And then when I look at the church around us, uh, you know, I'm not talking necessarily here, but like just the, the church in general, you usually don't see it look quite that perfect, right? Like you look at the church and you, you see glimmers of this pop up that are really encouraging, but then you can also look and you can find uh, some, some problems and you can find things where there isn't growth day by day by day. And there are times where it seems like growth isn't always uh, linear and it might not always be steady, but sometimes there's like highs and lows. And sometimes there's times where we're good at one thing and times where maybe we find out we're neglecting that thing. And, and so we try to work on fixing that. And there are groups within the church who some of them are super active, but then there are other groups where some of them might not do so much. And, and you see like all of these things, it's hard to have a church that these verses constantly and always define all that's going on. But if you keep reading the book of Acts, you realize that that's kind of true for the church in Jerusalem also. Uh, the church in Jerusalem wasn't always this. The church in Jerusalem, you have this like perfect looking beginning. But then very quickly, you realize that problems emerge. And these problems, some of them come from the outside, and they impact and affect the church. But then some of them come from sinfulness within the church also. And, and with each of these problems, the church has to figure out, how are we going to continue to be the people of God and not let these obstacles overcome us or destroy us or throw us off course? 
And that's largely what the section of the book of Acts that we're going to be going through today is about. It's like you have these problems that emerge from all sorts of directions. How is it that you overcome and continue to be the people of God? How is it that you continue to be a faithful, dedicated presence in a community to Jesus and, and bear witness to his goodness while you are a church filled with imperfect and sinful human beings? Um, as long as there are imperfect and sinful human beings in the church, there's going to be problems that arise. And so, rather than castigating the church or throwing off hope and saying, oh, the church is imperfect and so I'm going to go elsewhere, I think one thing we can do is recognize that we are all imperfect. And another thing we can do is recognize that maybe there are ways, instead of giving up because of obstacles, we can find ways to overcome those obstacles. I think that's what the church in, in the book of Acts is doing. I think there's, there are lessons about how to overcome the struggles and imperfections of the church as you continue to serve God faithfully. So that's what the lesson is going to be about largely today. Um, Acts 2, the end of it, it just reminds me of like, the Garden of Eden, you know, the beginning of creation. You have Adam and Eve, you have this beautiful garden, you have like everything looks perfect, but you don't need to read very far before you start seeing a whole bunch of problems. Uh, that's kind of how Acts begins. The church looks so amazing at the beginning, but it's not very long before you encounter problems. But those problems don't derail the church and they don't stop the work of the church. In fact, you can find other passages along the way where you see those highs come back, where the church is looking incredible again. Look at Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. This is another one of those passages that's a lot like the end of Acts 2. The church looks incredible in this passage. But what's happened in between is something uh, that we'll, we'll talk about more a little bit later. But... A problem has emerged. And the thing about this problem is it's not a problem that has emerged from within the church. This is an external problem. This is the problem of persecution, the problem from the outside. Uh, we, we will talk more about problems from the outside as we bring our lesson to a close. But what happened is Acts 2 is pretty much a long sermon by Peter. But then so is Acts 3. Acts 3 is a long sermon by Peter. And you could read through that sermon. And Acts 3 is a sermon from Peter based on the fact not that the Holy Spirit fell upon them and they began speaking in tongues like Acts 2, but based on the fact that they found someone and they healed him at the temple. And then a large crowd gathers. And so then Peter kind of follows that same pattern. He, an incredible, miraculous uh, event takes place. A large crowd gathers and, Paul, and Peter begins to, to preach. And so Peter preaches... And at the end of Acts 3, you get to Acts 4, and that's where he's arrested for it. And uh, he is arrested, and they basically they're told, don't do that anymore. And Peter says, well, I'm still going to do it. And, uh, and so you read through it, and, and you find out that, uh, that there are forces outside the church that want to put a stop to what's happening inside the church. But that doesn't put a stop to it. Eventually, Peter and, and John are released, and uh, you get to Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. And this is what the church does after they are released and everyone gets back together again. It says, And the congregation of those who believed were all of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but that all things were common property to them all. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For notice this phrase in verse 34. 
For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would distribute them uh, to each as any had need. Notice that phrase, there was not a needy person among them. What Jesus came to do, if you read through his own words, is he came to bring the kingdom of God. He is bringing a kingdom. And this is a kingdom that is... uh, in distinction from and even uh, opposed to many of the kingdoms of this world. Only the opposition to these other kingdoms of this world does not come in the form that normally the vision between kingdoms come. It doesn't come through violence and trying to blow each other up or kill anyone or anything like that. Jesus is going to fight against these other kingdoms through the sacrificial, loving generosity of the church and of the cross and of of his life. So like when you read Daniel 7, Daniel 7, you have this image of all of these kingdoms, all of these world empires coming from the sea, and they are all described as ruthless and violent beasts. But then you have one kingdom that comes, and it comes from the one who sits on the throne, the one who sits on the Ancient of, uh, the ancient of Days, the, the God of Heaven, and he gives a kingdom to one like a son of man. And this son of man becomes one that people from all of those other nations end up worshiping and honoring. The story of the book of Acts is largely that story. How you have a world full of violent empires, and you have the Roman Empire, and you have people who, when, whether you're talking about in Jerusalem and in Israel, or whether you go out and you do missionary journeys, what you're going to find is there's going to be resistance that meets you. The, the book of Acts is going to end with Paul imprisoned in Rome. Uh, there's going to be issues that arise wherever he ends up going. But as he travels and as these issues arise, there are also people from all of these different places that end up becoming followers and worshipers of the Son of Man. They become followers and worshipers of Jesus. And you're finding that a kingdom is being established that is not bound by borders, and a kingdom is being established that is in competition with the kingdoms of this world. How is the kingdom of Jesus going to defeat the beasts that roam and prowl and kill and destroy? Well, not through killing them, but through loving them and saving them. Uh, that, that's, how, that's how the kingdom of Jesus ends up uh, doing what, what it is called to do. So when you're reading this, you're reading about a kingdom. And one of the things that is distinct about Jesus' kingdom very early on here is it says there was not a needy person among them. How many kingdoms of the world can claim that? How many kingdoms of the world can claim that they have eliminated poverty? You know, that's, that's something that, that Jesus was able to do in his kingdom, at least for a while, uh, is that there was radical generosity. In fact, one of the things that you'll see is eventually a famine is going to hit Jerusalem. That's an external thing that no one can really, you know, do a whole lot about. But do you know what the Gentile churches end up doing because of a famine in Jerusalem? They end up putting their funds together and giving a big gift to the church of Jerusalem to try to help them through this. So that, why? So that there continues to be not a needy person among them. This is not a new idea. This is not something that the Bible has never spoken of before or has never been heard of before. In fact, I think this description that we just read here at the end of Acts chapter 4 goes back to a point we made it briefly last week. But the teachings of Jesus and the book of Acts, I think you begin to see this point come through. The church, one of its missions is to be Israel as Israel was always intended to be. I mean, just think about it. Israel had 12, you know, you have the 12 tribes of Israel, right? Um, 
you have 12 apostles that start, uh, that are kind of the, the foundation uh, based on that cornerstone uh, of the church. You have these 12 men that Jesus chose, who I think echo back to and parallel the, the 12 tribes of Israel. And then you have these men who go out and they begin to teach and to do the things of Jesus. But you'll see other connections as well. Like, for example, the story of Israel will be retold through them, only where Israel fails, you'll see the work of Jesus and his disciples being successful. Uh, one of those ways is in, like, for example, this passage right here. When you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 15, there's this description of what Israel is supposed to be. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, starting in verse 4, this is prior to entering into the promised land. We're finding out who Israel is supposed to be. Like, what, what kind of people are they supposed to be? And there's this description given in verse 4. However, there will be no needy people or no poor among you. You know what's fascinating? Uh, in the Septuagint, those are almost the exact same phrase right there. From Acts 4 and verse 34, which says, And there was not a needy person among them, to what is described here in Deuteronomy 15.4, that there's not supposed to be a needy person among them. What you're seeing is Israel was supposed to be a society where you didn't have the, the, the people who were destitute and poor and needy. Why is that? Well, you keep reading. In verse 4, it continues, since the Lord will surely bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you and is an inheritance to possess, if only you listen carefully and obediently to the voice of the Lord and observe all of his commandments which I'm commanding you today. You look down at verse 7. It says, if there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers, in any of your towns in the land which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brother, but you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient, uh, uh, sufficient for his need in whatever he lacks. What he's saying there is, look, there's going to be times where poverty becomes an issue. There's going to be poor people, but there's not going to be a land of poor people here because you're going to be generous with one another. That's what the church is doing in Acts 4. When it says there's not a needy person among them, it's not that no one had ever fallen on hard times. It's there's not a needy person among them for all who were owners of land were selling them and bringing the proceeds. What you're seeing is this, this radical generosity that is taking place. But like I said, looks beautiful, right? It's like a perfect picture of, of could you imagine being a, a community that is so tightly knit that people were making those types of sacrifices for another one? By the way, I'll say in just about every church that I've been a part of, I've seen people fall on hard times, and I've also seen other members of the church uh, generously contribute to help them through those times. So I, I don't think that this is just something that happened a long time ago. It's something that I still see in the world today. And when there's uh, bad storms that devastate other areas of Tennessee, I know this this church contributed a, a large sum to do that. So this is something that is still continuing on today, and it's a beautiful picture of what the church is called to be. But when you focus on the good, it doesn't take very long until the bad enters. Uh, we're introduced to a guy in verse 36 named Joseph. Uh, we know him more commonly as Barnabas. It says, uh, now Joseph, 
a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas, as, uh, by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement. By the way, a lot of people in the Bible, especially when you're reading through the New Testament, you'll find out they have like nicknames. Uh, you know, his name is Joseph, but he's called uh, Barnabas. Peter is, is a nickname for, uh, for Simon. Uh, and and, and a, a lot of folks, uh, that's kind of their name is descriptive of something about them or of, of hopefully something about them. Uh, but then verse 37 <clears throat> Here's what Joseph did, or Barnabas did. He owned a tract of land, and he sold it, and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Okay, so he did what these other people are doing. But now he's going to be contrasted with uh, a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. And here is where we're going to get that great, happy, glorious thing is going to turn into something uh, that's a whole lot darker and a whole lot uh, more wicked. You're going to ultimately see pride and greed and deceit enter into the church. Um, what happens is there's this couple, and they're thinking, you know what? It's, it's amazing. They are so close to doing something so good. Uh, it's like they decide we'll sell some of our land and we'll give it to the church also. Uh, you know, Joseph just did it, and other people are doing it, and people are speaking really well of them, but... I don't really want to give it all away. I'd like to keep some of it. That's not a wrong thing either, you know, to sell, to sell, some of, to sell your land and give some of it to the church. It's a nice thing to do, but it's a little bit motivated by greed that they want to keep for themselves. They're, they're unwilling to, to give it all, but then pride takes over because they think, but I still want everyone to think that I gave it all. And so I want everyone to think I'm so generous, even though I kind of want to keep on to my money. And so how do I work those two things out? How do I keep on to my money and get people to think I'm really generous? I know, I'll lie. And so uh, they give some of it to the church and they tell the church, this is everything. And so like all of a sudden with one action, you see a lot of bad stuff start entering. Something that's so good. By the way, that's how it often happens. A lot of times the problems that enter the church, they stem from some good things that are taking place. You'll see that in the next chapter, two of Acts. A good thing is happening, but then a good thing often gets turned into a, a negative or a bad thing uh, because of, of the types of attitudes that approach it. And so here we have an instance where greed enters the church and where pride enters the church and where deceit enters the church. And it's really the first time in Acts that you see internal sins start uh, permeating the church. We, we've seen external. We've seen persecution. We've seen people arrested. We've seen the officials tell people, do not preach in the name of Jesus. But you haven't really seen it come from within yet. And it's really a, a terrible story to keep reading because what happens is uh, the husband, after lying and then giving, being given the opportunity to tell the truth, he lies again. And then all of a sudden, he drops dead. And then his wife comes in a couple hours later and uh, she lies and she's given the opportunity to tell the truth and she lies and she drops down dead. And I don't know that anyone was really expecting that. Um, I think what in the world? <laughs> like, I mean, I, I know greed is wrong and I know pride is wrong and I know deceit is wrong, but, uh, but that's, that's shocking. And I think it's supposed to be shocking. I think it's supposed to be a story where you pause and your eyes open up and you think, what in the world? And I think perhaps it's supposed to remind you of something. Um, if you remember going back to uh, like when Israel was first starting, you remember who some of the very first priests were? 
you had Aaron and he had four sons, and two of them are kind of famous, a Nadab and Abihu. And it's their first time in the tabernacle offering service to God that we're not told exactly what it is, but we're told that there was uh, some sort of strange fire or they, they offered it in a way other than what God had commanded them. Um, and then right after that, there's also an admonition to not go about getting drunk. And so you want, I mean, we don't know exactly what happened, but they had just spent, spent a lot of time purifying themselves inside the tabernacle and getting themselves ready for this. And then they immediately flagrantly disobey what God told them to do. And what happens to them? Well, fire had just come from uh, the presence of God and filled the, uh, the altar. Well, fire comes from the presence of God and consumes them and they die. And it's like this message sent out to all of Israel and to all of the other priests, what you're doing right now is actually more important than you even realize. What you're doing right now is actually life and death serious. The church, I think Acts is trying to get this idea across, is life and death serious. Uh, it's not something to take lightly lying and greed and deception and, uh, and pride, those are things that harm, kill, and destroy God's church. And he wants none of it. And so very early on, a tone is set. When you approach the people of God and when you join into this kingdom and this community of God, it is something to take with utmost seriousness. Um, don't do it lightly. Don't disregard the church. It actually matters. It matters more than my whole life. And it matters more than anything about, like, the church is more important than me. And Ananias and Sapphira receive that message uh, clearly, and it becomes a message to the rest of the church as well. As a matter of fact, it becomes such a message that when you get to verse 11, it says, Great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. And then it says, At the hand of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico, but none of the rest dared to associate with them because the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly being added. It's really incredible that this happens, and it doesn't seem to scare everybody off. It sends, seems to send a message, God's actually at work here. And sometimes even the God that we love so much can be kind of terrifying, but he's working and I want to be a part of what God is doing. And the numbers continue to grow even after this takes place. So that's one problem that uh, entered the church and you don't really see anything else like that happen. Uh, it's very rare that, that something like that happens. You know, most of the like, pe people die all the time in the Bible and people die in our lives. Like that's, that's a part of life, the last, um, but that is, you know, that's something that happens all the time, but you don't usually see it happen prematurely like that in some sort of divine way. You do see it um, with uh, Uzzah, you know, as they are, which again, it's kind of a, a lot of times when it happens, it's at this foundational moment for a new direction things are going to go, whether it is the initiation of the tabernacle or when they're first bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem under David. That's where it happens to, to um, Uzzah when he touches the Ark of the Covenant after they, you know, instead of carrying it on the poles, they put it on the back of a cart uh, and have, a, have a, an um, animal carry it and then the animal stumbles and it's about to fall off and he grabs the thing and he dies. It's because they were about to begin something very, very serious, and they were doing it disobediently, haphazardly, and it sends a message. God 
is serious about these things. Uh, I think the same thing is ha happening here in Acts chapter 5. And as it happens, instead of scaring everyone away, people actually continue to come into the church because they recognize that this matters. Um, another problem quickly emerges, though. Again, an, an external problem emerges at the end of Acts 5. Uh, they are arrested again, and they're beaten this time, and they're told not to preach in the name of Jesus. Uh, but we'll talk about external problems here at the end. Uh, but in Acts chapter 6, another internal problem arises. The first one we saw was based on like pride and, and greed and deceit. I think pride was the main issue, and that led to greed and deceit and, and these other things. They wanted, they wanted to be a part of the movement, but they wanted to do so in such a way where they could keep their happy, comfortable life, uh, but still get like credit from people, still get a reputation among people as being generous. And that was just a whole misunderstanding of what the church is all about. Um, when you get to Acts chapter 6, you find something else good that the church is doing. So one thing the church is doing is they're selling their possessions and goods and they're contributing so that they are eliminating poverty among the people of God. That's a really good thing. That's one of the reasons why poor people are going to really like hearing the gospel. Because it's actually, I mean, even earlier in the book of uh, Luke, Jesus says that he came to preach the gospel to the poor. Which is fascinating that it's like, you, know, you think, well, the gospel's for everyone. And there, yes, the gospel is for everyone. But there also seems to be a specific uh, benefit to poor people. They, they're going to particularly benefit from the gospel. You can see it right there. It's not the poor people who are losing their lands. It's the poor people who poverty is eliminated. And it's the wealthier people who now have less property than they used to have. Like, like there are ways in which, like Jesus says, the whole eye of a needle thing, it's going to cost more for wealthy people uh, like perhaps our society and wealthier societies sometimes are going to be more hesitant about the gospel than sometimes in, in poor societies where people are going to, you know, come and commit themselves by droves. Uh, you can look at missionary statistics and you can see that if you go to a wealthy society, it generally is going to have a much uh, harder and slower uh, missionary uh, success than if you go to an impoverished place. Uh, that's true, I think, individually. It's true collectively. It's true across societies. It's true 2,000 years ago and it's true today. That's just how this stuff works. But when you get to Acts chapter 6, you find out that there are other good works of the church that are taking place. Not only are people selling and generously giving and eliminating poverty, they're also feeding people. Uh, you have these widows uh, who are being uh, fed by the church. And when you get to Acts chapter 6, in verse 1, it says, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, so again, there's, there's more increase taking place. Uh, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews uh, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So basically you have some Israelites who are Greek speakers and some Israelites who are natives. And uh, the widows from those groups are noticing that there's a disparity in how they're being served. It seems that now one of the internal problems is what we would call prejudice. Um, the church is looking at people who are in need, and the church is looking at its members, and it's prioritizing some based on their nationality or where they're from or, or what language they speak, and they are excluding or they are uh, downplaying the needs of others. Again, feeding people is a good thing. Uh, kind of like selling your property and giving to the church is a good thing. 
But remember how they gave some of it and they held some back? What they're doing now is they're feeding some and they're holding some others back and they're creating a division within the church based on something like nationality, which by the way, if you read the book of Acts, that's probably going to be your biggest no-no that, that arises. Uh, over and over again, this whole idea of Jews and Gentiles being united with one another, that's where this is heading. That's where the church is being pushed. And they're in a situation where this is, these aren't even Jews and Gentiles. These are all Jews, but some of them are a little bit more Gentile-y. You know, they're Hellenistic Jews. They're a little farther out. But the other ones, they're native, pure, you know, from, from Israel, from Jerusalem. And so what you end up finding is they get give preference to this group and they exclude this group. Well, if they're doing that already with Jewish widows who are hungry, how are they possibly going to be able to actually take the Gentile mission seriously? And so this is a big, big problem. And it's a problem the church is going to have to overcome. And you start seeing it happen in small ways like, all right, Start treating the Hellenistic Jewish widows the same as you treat the native Jewish widows. And then it'll be with things like um, the Ethiopian eunuch. You have an Ethiopian who traveled to Jerusalem to worship. Okay, so if you have a proselyte uh, or someone who is from a Gentile land, he can have the gospel too. Eventually in Acts 10, and we'll get to this next week, you're going to have a full-fledged Gentile who becomes a part of the church. But notice even him, he's a Gentile who contributed to Jerusalem. He seems to like uh, in, in being in good standing with, with Jews. Uh, what will end up happening is you'll end up going to pagan temples and stuff, like the farthest thing you can imagine from an Israelite. And Acts is going to be showing how the gospel, little by little, is going to be spreading to all of these people so that you learn God is not a respecter of persons. God is not going to choose one kingdom or one nation above another kingdom or another nation. God is not going to choose one race or one nationality or one people group to elevate it above others. And to think that he does is sinful and needs to be eradicated from the church. And so that is Acts chapter 6 showing the earliest seeds of that springing up. And the church is realizing this is a problem and it needs to be solved. And so you know what they do? They solve this problem through service. Uh, they select seven men full of the Holy Spirit, people who uh, are, have a good reputation in the church, and they say, make sure that not only do the widows get fed, which is a very good work, but that there's no discrimination or prejudice as the widows get fed. Make sure that they are able to be fed equally. And guess what? They're able to solve some of these problems that arise. Uh, so, so you go through Acts, and again, you see problems of greed and pride, and those are going to be overcome through recognizing the power of God and through generosity and through uh, a fear and a reverence for realizing that sin is not something that's just light and easy and okay to bring into the church. The church actually matters, and we need to address that very seriously. Uh, you see that prejudice is going to be addressed through service and through making sure that prejudice is does not become a part of the life of the church and of what the church is about. Um, those are some of the internal problems that are arising in Acts. But with each one of them, you see external problems as well. For example, in Acts chapter 3 and 4, which we mentioned earlier, before we even get to Ananias and Sapphira, uh, what you have is the church being persecuted from the outside. And then right after Ananias and Sapphira, but before the widows, you have the church being persecuted again. They are arrested and they are beaten. Some people want to have them killed. That's where Gamaliel gives his advice. He basically says, let's just kind of wait and see what happens with this thing. He's unwilling to say God is certainly not involved. 
So he says, let's wait and see. If this thing fizzles out, which by the way, most little movements do. Like most, most little movements where people start, uh, you know, saying that we found the Christ or the Messiah. That's not, that's not, that didn't only happen with Jesus. That happened with quite a few people. In fact, he mentions two of them in Acts 5. But historically, uh, I've heard numbers about like 20 within 100 years on either side of Jesus that we know historically these little movements that started where people thought that they had a Christ or a Messiah or a new leader. And then what happens? They, those movements fizzle out and we don't even know what they are anymore. And you have to pick up a history book to even learn the names of some of these leaders. Um, None of them, by the way, were raised from the dead. Uh, and so what ends up happening is he says, let's just wait and see. It'll probably just fizzle out. And if it doesn't, I don't really want to be the guy who's fighting against God. So let's just see what God is doing with them. Uh, and the people hear him and they say, okay, that's kind of good advice, but we're still going to beat them up before we send them away. And so they beat them before they let them go. But then the church ends up growing. And that's where the controversy begins with uh, the, the widows. And they choose these seven men to make sure that the widows are all fed. But then one of those seven men, when you get to Acts chapter 7, he begins, uh, he gets arrested and begins preaching. And he has to give a defense. And do you know what happens with him? Uh, we won't have time to get into his sermon right now, but his sermon ends with people furious. And they pick up stones and they stone him to death. And his name is Stephen. And he dies right there. And it sends a message that uh, not only is the church a very serious thing, but they're in very, very hostile territory right now. And things are getting worse and worse and worse. In fact, things get so bad that when you get to Acts chapter 8, <clears throat> verse 1, we're introduced to a guy named Saul, uh, or, or at least where we learn a little bit more about a guy named Saul. And it says, And Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. Saul thought, yeah, he should die for what he was just saying. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. And Saul began ravaging the church, entering home after home and dragging men and women, and he would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. So here we see another external problem arise, and it's persecution. Um, there's just not a lot you can do about that one. You can take steps to overcome greed and, and uh, pride and deception in the church. You can take steps to overcome prejudice, some of these internal things. The church, I believe, is designed by God in such a way to be self-correcting. We should get better at things. We should notice our problems. Repentance is a part of who we are. You know, even in Jesus' famous prayer when he says, um, uh, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our sins. Like, foundational to understanding what the kingdom of God is, is the recognition that sin will be a part of it and we're going to be in need of forgiveness of it. We need to extend forgiveness to one another and beg God's forgiveness. Sin's going to be a part of what we do. Failure is going to be a part of what we do. That'll always happen. But you can take steps to admit it, to repent of it, to be forgiven of it, to try to overcome it, to try to improve and to do better. There are some things, though, that repenting won't stop the church from being persecuted. Uh, that's an external problem that is dependent upon the actions of others, and you can't really control the actions of others. So what does the church do when it comes to persecution? 
Well, there are a couple of things that have popped up throughout Acts uh, with these times that I just mentioned. If you go back to Acts chapter 4, in verse 12, this is Peter the first time that he's arrested. He says something kind of bold here. He says that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Remembering who your Lord and Savior is is a really good way to face persecution. That's, that's essential to facing persecution. If you're unwilling or uh, not confident in who your Lord and Savior is, then persecution will be a lot more successful in getting you to back away from Christ. Another thing you see is at the end of Acts chapter 5. This is after Gamaliel gives his advice and they take the disciples and they go out and beat them. A whole new perspective has to take over the disciples in order for, uh, in order for them to be able to uh, continue on doing what they're doing. And you can see this uh, new perspective in verses 41 and 42, the passage that was read before this lesson started. So they went on their way from the presence of the council. This is right after they had been beaten. They were rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So they certainly remembered who their Christ, who their Lord, and who their Savior was. They remembered the name of Jesus. And it so transformed their view of reality that when persecution came their way, they considered it to be, in some sense, a compliment from God. God considered them actually worthy to suffer this. I've wondered before, maybe... In cultures where the church isn't persecuted, maybe that's a sign that we're not worthy yet. Uh, Maybe there's more we could be doing. Maybe that's something where God is protecting the church because they're not quite as devout as they should be yet. I don't know that that's the case, but I think it could be a reminder that persecution actually means something. It can mean that God considers you to be worthy to share something with Jesus. Persecution is a way that we feel fellowship with Jesus in his sufferings. Jesus was persecuted, Jesus suffered, and Jesus died. And when the church shares with him in that, fellowship is taking place. And that's something that you're worthy to do. You're worthy to join Jesus in something that intimate. Uh, And the church has to change its mindset to where persecution now becomes actually a blessing from God, which is what Jesus said. Blessed are those who are persecuted. You know, like that's, that's a shocking thing to say, But the church seems to have taken that idea to heart, that blessed are those who are persecuted. And then you continue on when you get to Acts chapter 8, and you see that the church has uh, now begun to experience persecution in in violent ways that is even leading to death. They they leave, uh, which is also acceptable. Uh, They flee from that persecution. But do you know what they do? They take the word of God with them, and they take the gospel with them. And I think as you talk about external forces that can cause problems in the church, um, they might not always be direct persecution. Sometimes it's just living in a culture that's ambivalent towards Christianity. 
Sometimes it's living in a culture that uh, the morals of that culture so diverge from Christian teaching that they begin to see Christianity as a strange thing or something oppressive or something that holds people back. Uh, I think you can live in cultures where people develop negative views towards Christians, even if they're not going out and stoning them and, and stuff like that. But it becomes harder and harder to be an effective witness in a certain cultures. I think that, that might describe the culture that we live in. You can't always do a lot to change what the way culture thinks. But I believe what you can do is you can remember that Jesus is your Savior and is the Lord in all that you do. And I think that you can remember that uh, suffering for his name's sake is actually a compliment. It means that you are worthy of something. And I think that you can continue to take the word of God with you. And I believe that the word of God is powerful enough and that the gospel is true and meaningful enough that it can make an impact in the lives of people no matter what culture they live in. Um, you'll see that happen with Paul as we continue this study. We'll see the different ways that the gospel is not changed but is packaged to where certain cultures are able to hear it one way and other cultures hear it another way, and it's able to reach them where they are. Sometimes there's success and sometimes there's less success, and, and you can't always control that, but what you can do is you can remember that there is salvation found in no name other than Jesus Christ. In fact, as you keep reading through Acts 8 and then you get into Acts chapter 9, not only is the church growing and spreading and even geographically spreading now, but even that guy Saul we were introduced to, he's able to come to believe in the resurrected Lord Jesus through an incredible experience that he has, and he becomes this incredible ambassador on behalf of Christ to the world around him. Losing hope or thinking that it's impossible, you know, people probably thought it was impossible for Saul to become a Christian, right? Those are the types of things that can keep the church from being what it's called to be. Losing hope because of those external forces or those external problems uh, can keep us quiet and can keep us inside and can keep us from being what God has called us to be. Never lose hope. Truly trust that Jesus and the gospel of Christ are powerful and are worthy of being heard. And no matter what comes your way, recognize that there is something more valuable that is found in Jesus uh, than anything this world can throw at you. As you read through Acts, they had to figure a lot of this stuff out. They had to figure it out on the fly a lot of times. So they were, had problems emerge from the inside. They were being persecuted from the outside. And they had to kind of figure out what are they going to do to be the church. And I think they give us some pretty good ideas of things that we could try to do as well. Generosity, service to others, like with the widows, um, honesty and integrity and trusting in the power and the saving message of Jesus Christ seem to be kind of at the top of their list. Uh, if there's anyone here tonight who would like to become a Christian, if there's anyone here tonight who maybe you're looking at your life and you're realizing that sin is entering through you and you would like the prayers of the church and the help and the encouragement, we pray that you would let that be known. We'd love to help you in any way that we can. And if there's anyone here who would like to become a Christian, would like to have your sins washed away in baptism, please let that be known. You can either come and sit on the front row or you can meet with one of our elders in the library in the back but if you have a need please come while we stand and sing